7 through chapter 12 through verse 20. Um, Dylan will be doing that reading for us this morning. Introduction, uh, I don't have anything to point to uh, via scripture, so you can keep that on the, the Genesis slide there. But then I'll move into uh, looking at the, the God's generous blessing, which he is giving to Abraham, or Abram. I bite my word a little short, Abram. But Abram um, receives a blessing, but in order to see the blessing, I need to go through and show the dire situation that Abram was in. So it's pretty straightforward for you. I'll have a Genesis eleven twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty, 30, reading, um, hinting at uh, some of the challenges that he was facing in his family. I'm going to take a quick journey back to chapter eleven two looking at the descendants who built the Tower of Babel. And at verse 4, 11-4, um, Terah is his name. So, and then, uh, then I'll go back to Genesis eleven thirty-one. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, and his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, and his sons, Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter into the land of Canaan. And they went out as far as Haran and settled there. Um, I'll make a reference. Wait a second. Wait a second. Yeah, I make reference to the blessing. So then I'm going to jump over verse 1. I'm going to come back to it. Look at verses 2 and 3. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, and so shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Um, I think that besides Genesis 12.1, I talk for a little bit, then I come back to 12.1, um, is the last verse for that point. So. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So there is, I'm going to do a straight reading and then I'll do a clarification reading is that the blessing is not dependent upon Abraham, but yeah, God's going to make this happen. Yeah, good, good catch. I didn't remember if I did that or not. Uh, point two would be Abram's response. So in Abram's response, uh, you're going to notice what I'll try to present is three different shortcomings of Abraham in his response to, Ab- to this, this promise. He's, he's an individual that God's patiently working with. Genesis 12.1, uh, Abraham is told to leave his country, his relatives, and his father's house. But then when you read Genesis 12.4, um, you should have 12, Genesis 12.4, Abram brought Lot with him. Um, I'll kind of go through a bit of the God's patience, but his grace even extended even in spite of that. Genesis 12, 5 through 7, 8 through 9. Oh, that's better. Uh, and finally, um, the second issue that Abram faces is showing a limitation to his own response was not when they brought Lot along, but when things get hard, he flees. So you're going to see in Genesis 12, 10, 
when there's famine in the land, he leaves the promise which was given to him. And then the third um, situation he faces himself with, uh, with hesitation, is uh, Abram gives his wife to another man. So that's going to be in Genesis 12, 11 through 13, 14 through 20. Um, yeah, crazy that he does this. Um, which leads us to our third point, convictional response. So we're going to have, I think I just have three passages there. I have John 18, 25 through 27. I have John 21, 15 through 17. And two, Second Peter 3, 9. So, so it seems like we're all right. I just have to fill in the gaps between all those verses. When you do the, like, the dry run on it, it feels like, well, I hope there's something there that can fix us. But yeah, it's pretty dry at that point. All right, good. Thank you. And following. Um, and if you were to make a list of like the top 10 most important passages in the Bible, not that they're not all important, but like top 10 that you should really know, this would be in that list. Um, this is a very foundational passage of Scripture, especially the beginning of chapter 12. But um, Romans, or I'm sorry, Genesis, I spent a long time in Romans for me to, yikes. Genesis 11, verse 27. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. 
Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. And the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me. But they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it, will, will, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I'm, I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. It was a joy to be able to worship with you this morning. Um, it is true that this is a significant portion. To not understand who Abraham is, is to misunderstand the very first verse that we read in Matthew, in that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of the promises that were originally given to Abram, to which we have realized ourselves our own salvation, which is what we sing for this morning. So with all that in mind, um, it strikes me uh, as a child, when I learned about these individuals when we go through the Old Testament, and from time to time I, I meet someone who has decided at one point to begin reading the Old Testament for themselves, they will approach me from time to time and say, I, I can't believe that these people did this. As a child, I can, I, I can relate to that statement because as a child, I learned about Abram and I learned about Jacob and I learned about Gideon and Samson and David, but I understood them or considered them vaguely. And what I mean by that is I made some assumptions that because the individuals were in the scriptures, that these were then examples of profound men and women of faith, those who walk righteously and set a standard for all. But then when you start reading about the individuals within the stories, you come to this realization that they were far from perfect. Gideon led the nation into idolatry. It was Samson who was just a plain jerk it was David who killed a man for his wife. It was Jacob, who I identify with by name but not by practice, who was a deceiver. 
he was always trying to get the upper hand through deceit and told false truths. Well, that'd be a lie. And it was Abraham that we see today who hands off his wife to be married to yet another man. And I find it interesting that you will come to it, I come to it as well, as you read the text, not and consider the people vaguely, you come to realize that these people are far from perfect. And I don't know what it is, but for me, I have to remind myself that like, just because the name of the individual is mentioned doesn't mean that Abram or Eve or Cain or Seth or Adam are now at the front of the story the main actor. And you'll find it, and I've tried to stress this already going through Genesis, the main actor is God Himself who works patiently with humanity who has yet trusted in Him. There's a lot to learn from here, and I have to choose how much to empty the bucket to convict us with. Because I do think Just as Abram was given significant promises, we in Christ have received significant promises. And my prayer today for you and I as we consider these words is that we may be aware more fully of the patience of God extended towards you. Because... While I look at Abraham and I can think, I can't believe he did that. Why would he give his wife to another man to be married? And, and God still choose to work with him. But as critical as I might become, I can acknowledge for my own self that as I look back through my own life, There are moments where I reflect and think, I can't believe I did that. I won't present you with the examples because I know that you have your own and it's unnecessary. What we find in Genesis here is God being incredibly generous to humanity and and, and and patiently moving an individual along. We're at a hinge in Genesis. Chapter, Genesis chapter 11 and chapter 12 changes everything. And which now, in chapters 11 and preceding everything before that, we were looking at the beginnings of the world. And when we get to chapter, 20, or chapter 12, we start seeing God and how He has worked with the patriarchs which established the nation of Israel, which become the fulfillment of the great Messiah and promised one, Jesus Christ. And as tempting it is, is to look at these chapters and look ahead to Christ, there is something that the writer wants us to consider here. God graciously blessed Abram. And in this, we can identify with Abram because he's a man who has to learn how to trust this one to fulfill the promises. And in this chapter, Abram struggles. So, but as we walk through this, let's just look first at God's generous blessing that he gave 
towards Abram. The blessing is significant for the reasons which Abram found himself in. Like me, when you come to genealogies, you practice the skim, right? And I would hesitate, if there's any portion, to, to, to be cautious with that practice because the writer is doing something through this genealogy. Starting at chapter 11, verse 10, I did not ask Adam to read the whole genealogy, which he was grateful for. But in this genealogy, it's different. It's different from the genealogies we've read before. Because in the genealogies before, it always mentioned, and they died. Here in this genealogy, the writer actually is just showing the progression from family to family. And you don't see death pop up until you get to Terah. What is the author doing? He's trying to show you the dire situation which Abram and Terah had found themselves in. Notice, reading at verse 27, the change of which the genealogy starts to take. And the dire situation which they needed, they utterly needed to go on to show up. Verse 27. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Terah had three sons. And as we've seen before, Noah had three sons. Abraham, excuse me, Adam had three sons. And their sons made some of them wise decisions and some made unwise decisions. It was Cain who killed Abel. Now, it was through Cain's family who produced the opportunity for necessity for a flood upon all, all the earth. And it was Noah's family. He had three sons, and it was Ham who decided to act, as Dan taught last week, in a way that was disgraceful to the family and put a wedge within the family. And it was through Ham's family, Nimrod decided to build a city for their name. God, seeing their wickedness, he scattered them there by giving them all different languages. And Terah has three sons. The reader must think, how are these three sons going to act? How are they going to respond? Verse 28, it's dire. Haran died. First mention of in the genealogy, Haran died. A son dies before his father. Uh, before this, you can read in the genealogy, the fathers die and the children bury. That's how it's supposed to work. Buries their parents. Reader might think, well, at least he has two other sons. Verse 28, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the lands of the birth and Ur of Chaldeans. Chaldeas. Verse 29, and so Abram and Nerah, Nahor, they took wives for this, themselves. Verse 29, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Melchah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Melchah and Ishkah. And then we're hit with this mighty blow. Not only is Terah's line in danger, Abram marries a woman who's barren. Look at verse 30. Sarai was barren, and she had no child. We've been reading, you've been going along with us and understanding what the writer is doing. There has been this issue ever since the descendants of Adam and Eve. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be like God. 
And, and in the previous chapter, chapter 11, you see this inner desire from Nimrod's family. Let's make a name for ourselves. Going contrary to the standard of God and multiplying, filling the earth. Terah's opportunity is diminishing. Has to bury a son. And Abram, his wife is barren and she has no child. Terah thinks, maybe we just got to start off. And so he goes east. Look at verse 31. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. Situation becomes even more challenging because one of his sons has decided not to go. And we look now in the genealogy in a plain presentation of a family that looks utterly cursed. They have Disconnection, barrenness, literally without hope for any future. Promise becomes hopeful. And this is how God always works. Because, like, in chapter 11, they're like, we can make brick. Let's make a name for ourselves. You can see this, the, the, this proud position, 11, chapter 11, verse 4. And they say, come, let us build for ourselves a city, a, a tower whose top will reach into the heavens. We can make brick. And let us make a, for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. We can make a name. Terah and his family and his son, Abram, Hopeless. No opportunity to make a name. And this is when the promise comes in. The promise of hope becomes something significant because of what position Abram was in. If God don't show up, that's it. Family done. Genealogy over. And this is where the promise comes in. And this is the days of Terah was 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. That's verse 32. And before he... Excuse me, let me just keep going on. And it was in this moment that God intervened with the promise to Abram. Abram has no ability to make a name for himself, but look what happens. Let me start at verse 2 of chapter 12, and I'll come back to verse 1 here in a second. God, speaking to Abraham, he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham, put in this dire situation, gets the grace of God poured upon him, in which 
As we know up through Genesis up to this point, the only one who has the right to give blessing upon humanity is God. When he created Adam and Eve, he blessed them, multiply and fill the earth. After the Noah's flood, Noah's, not Noah's flood, but God's flood in which he preserved Noah, Noah was blessed by God to multiply and fill the earth. And that blessing which comes forth only from God is now put upon a family which is disconnected or barren and hopeless. I will make you a great nation. I, it's four times. Like, if you understood chapter 11, we make brick, we can make a name in our, make a name for ourselves. Chapter 12, it is utterly dependent upon the one who's giving the promise. I will. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Abram, you don't have to worry about it. Sarai, you don't have to worry about it. I will do it, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is significant promise, which has traditionally how we often communicate it, is in three different layers. One, it's unique in that it's personal for Abram and Sarai. It's personal in that God will make their name great. Not dependent upon them to fulfill it, but upon the power which who gave it the promise. Two, it's going to lead into building the nation of Israel. As we go on, this issue of barrenness continues in Abram's family. And you will see over and over again God fulfill his promises even though the womb is barren. And God opens it. So while it's personal, it becomes the means by which a nation will be established. And finally, through that nation will be the blessings throughout the whole world. And who's going to accomplish it? Not Abram, but the Lord. What's so cool about this, it conclude, this promise included land, place to live, and included children. We're going to see this unfold. We're going to see the generational blessing, global impact, divine protection, and even divine mediation. It's like a promise too good to be true. Unless... The one who gives the promise is able to accomplish it. I can promise you a million dollars, but in my savings, it's not there. The reality is, as we have come to realize in Genesis even 1 and 2, it's God who creates all life. He can give such promises and therefore fulfill them. It's a promise in which if God doesn't act, Adam's family is done. Point two. Wait, not yet. I told you I was going to go back to verse 1. Promise, too good to be true. Abram, this is what's expected of you. Verse 1. This is going to sound so familiar. Especially when we get to the life of Christ, he speaks with this type of language. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go. Go forth from your family, your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will 
show you. Go. You're going to have to leave your country where you have security. You're going to have to leave your father's house. And you don't know where you're going. It's going to literally cost you everything in order to receive these promises. Blessing, the promise is good to be too good to be true. And yet, Abraham, it's going to require everything from you. In chapter 12, we have the presentation put before us a response of faith. What is Abraham's response? Point two. How does he respond? And I have to let you recognize in Genesis chapter 12, we're not. We're not far from our introduction because, because Abram's going to make three decisions that are demonstrating like an unwavering faith. There is a, a difference between the Abram that we find in Genesis 12 and the Abram that we'll read in the future here in coming weeks in Genesis chapter 22. For then in Genesis chapter 22, go kill your son. Sacrifice him upon the mountain. And Abram, by faith, does it without wavering. Here in Genesis chapter 12, we see, we see a man who, who is hopeful, yet he's uncertain. And as we watch this unfold, while we learn from Abram, we learn ultimately how God is patient towards Abram and you in spite of us in light of his promises. The first hiccup is found in verse 4. He goes with me in chapter 12, verse 4. So Abram went forth. Man, he literally has nothing. So, good. Let's go. Let's go. We can stay here. The family, it's Appears to be crushed. What else do we have to do? So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. You see this? Do you remember, remember what God asked him to do? Verse 1, let me go back. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house and to the land which I will show you. You're supposed to leave your relatives and your father's house, who does he bring along? The son of his brother. Now, mind you, Terah is still alive. The grandfather. Why does Abram bring his nephew along? Others argue, as I, I think, as I understand the whole chapter's flow. It's the backup plan. He's going to do it again here in a few chapters. Sarai's like, I, I'm barren. Here, sleep with my servant. We can't have a child. We should have a son. He takes Lot. Another way you can translate, translators have to make decisions, and this is what makes it so difficult. So Abram went up forth as the Lord has spoken to him, but you could translate it the same way, but Lot went with him. So he acts in faith, and yet there's this, seems to be this backup plan. Now, Abram was 75 years old. <laughs> He's getting up there. 
when he departed from Hanan, but he goes. And so he takes Sarai. It, let me just, I understand that there might be some that might find that challenging to understand because it might be perceived. Abram's taken his nephew's son. This is a good thing. Well, when you read Genesis 13 and 14 and 16 and 17, Lot becomes a significant challenge for Abram and his family. It leads to strife, physical harm, social uh, disaster in Sodom and Gomorrah. It leads to, in chapter 19, incest. And finally, at the end of Genesis chapter 19, generational enmity. Yet in all of that, even in, in those regards, God still is gracious to Abram and to Lot along the way. And God, I think is patiently working with Abram. The faith which you see Abram in Genesis chapter 12 is different than the faith that you see him stand in in Genesis chapter 22. There he just takes his son. Here he's learning. And God works with him. Verse 5, Abram took Sarah's wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated, accumulated and the person which they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the side of the Shechem to the Oak of Moriah. Now the Canaanite was there then in the land. Look at verse 7. This is cool. New language. Not, no, no, no. Not new. Familiar. And when Adam and Eve were in the garden, who walked and came to be with them? It's this grace of God which he now appears to Abraham in the land. Look at verse 7. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, and notice the emphasis, Abraham, not by your hand, to your descendants I will give this land. I will make you a name. I will bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will give to your descendants this land. And Abraham's response as he built a tower of Babel. No. Now that's the other family line. They wanted to build a tower for their name. And Abram, who's coming to know this God, fulfills his promises, builds an altar there for the name of the Lord. And here who, he, who have appeared to him there, look at verse 8, emphasizes it twice. You've got to like Abram, even though there's a wavering faith here. Yet he, he has the desire to honor the Lord. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. It's like, God promised me this land. I'm going to go look at it. He goes from the north to the south, from the east to the west, and he looks at all of it. And he built an altar to the Lord. He called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on continuing towards the Negev. So, he, he's responsive to the promise of God, yet he's carrying a little bit of luggage. Let me mention the next two. You're going to see him struggle yet in his faith. After observing all the land, look what happens in verse 10, his second hiccup. Things get tough. This land's yours. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. 
for the famine was severe in the land. So rather than trusting himself in the one who provides for all his needs, he flees from the land that was promised to him. Man, this will be a passage in which will be hard for Israel to learn. Even as they come out of Egypt, and when it gets difficult, they want to go back to Egypt. This is to become a theme in which builds upon later. As soon as it gets hard, all you want to do is go back to Egypt. Well, where did you get that from? Where your father? And it's going to lead to this disaster, which we find ourselves, I can't believe he did this. What I, find, what I love about this whole scenario is that God works with him through all of these things. And if I were to want to plead with you, and I'm not under the convictional response yet, that the patience of God which is given towards Abram over these next chapters should reflect, if we understand the patience of God that has been given towards us, towards one another. And can't you see it in our own nation, how impatient we are? Like, we tend to have a measure of patience for our family members, but we're so quick to write people off. When you learn about Abram, you're learning about a God who's patient and is crafting Abram into this man of faith. He doesn't necessarily get it. When it gets hard, he flees, has this baggage lot. And when he gets to Egypt, he practices this self-preservation. Look at verse 11. And it came about. When he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you're beautiful. You're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Notice, notice, this is the first time Abram has spoken. And it's not in a position of, we'll trust the Lord to protect us. I mean, if you watch the men, men, in the book of Genesis, when they speak, it's often foolish. Like us. Sarah doesn't, she loving her husband, goes along with this. So he says to her, please say, verse 13, that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and then I may live on account of you. You're going to do a good thing. <laughs> we understood God established marriage for a woman to leave her family, to be united to a man, to become a whole new family, Abram has not responded to this standard. And it came about in this act of self-preservation when Abram came into Egypt. This is exactly what happens. This is what he fears in verse 14. The Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And so, Pharaoh's ecstatic, a new bride. Lips of both Abram and Sarai are shut, and they receive blessing. 
what Pharaoh does. He treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. And what you read next is, a, is the man in the story who's taken the other man's wife is more fearful of God than the one who's received the ultimate promises, which is personal, national, and universal. Pharaoh is, feels like he's been just deceived by a serpent. Look what happens. The Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. God's going to make sure his promises go the way that he fulfills. He, because it is God who's going to initiate the fulfillment of the promises, he intervenes. And Pharaoh immediately catches on, right? But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai and Abram's wife. Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? You've led me into a sin of ignorance. You said she was your sister. Why did you t- not tell me that it was she was your wife? And Abram answers honestly. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife, now the, and here is your wife. He, he doesn't dismiss Pharaoh. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. It's almost as if you're, I don't know, there may not be a correlation here, but when Adam and Eve sinned, like they were escorted or kicked out of the garden, Abram going to a land that's not his land or not has been promised to him, he's literally, because of his deception, kicked out of the land. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife, all that belonged to him. It's a different Abraham that you see in chapter 12 than you see in verse 20, or chapter 22. Here is a man who has not yet fully realized or entrusted himself into the promises of God. The blessings are, are too good to be true. And they're given by the one who can actually accomplish them and protect them in spite of Abram. And God intervenes when this takes place. What is the author trying to call us to? Three, our convictional response. It's easy to jump to Genesis chapter 22 and look at the faith of Abram there. But you're going to watch Abram be brought along and the patience of God shape and make Abram into a great man of faith. And Sarai too. Is that not the case for you? I thought about it this week and I chuckled to myself. What is one thing that we can can respond convictionally to this passage? And I laughed to myself when I thought, well, maybe I call our people not to hand off your spouse to be married to another man or woman. And we laugh, but the things in which we will do to protect and preserve ourselves. Like, why do you lie? Because you're exposed. And when you're exposed you will go into self-preservation mode. 
and rather entrusting yourself in the one who stands before the God of heavens, who gives an account as your mediator, you, you act contrary. Here is a man who is learning how to trust in the one who's given him promises. But it's not just Abram that God does this with, is it? He's going to do this with Isaac. He's going to do this with Jacob. He's going to do this with Gideon. And if we were to look at the one who is God, who incarnated himself among us, lived the perfect life that we ought to have lived, did he not extend the same patience towards those around him? I mean, think of Peter. Like, Peter's messed up, right? Like, Peter gets it right at one occurrence. I just find it interesting. In the Gospels, it's not till midway that Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? It's after careful presentation of who Christ is, the promised one of Abraham. He heals the lame. He reads the thoughts and minds of men. He forgives sins. He casts out the demons. And as they watch, you see these men with wavering faith. They've left everything to follow him. And yet, never are they disqualified because they don't perfectly follow him. And when Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter just knocks it out of the park. Like, isn't it interesting that we can have spiritual highs and in the next moment, like Abram and like Peter, we're in a position where we're like, I can't believe I did that. And and Peter does this, does he not? Jesus says, you get it right. I am the son of the living God. And now I'm going to Jerusalem to atone for sins. And Peter rebukes him. No, you won't. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, the night before Christ's crucifixion. I mean, I just... Why I love the Old Testament, why I love the God of old and new is he's, he's the same. He works with people and he makes them into men of faith and women of faith. And Peter, on the night which Christ was to be crucified, a servant girl says, are you following this man? And three times denies it. Like if there is anyone and throughout all of Scripture, and I, I mean, I would write Abram off. I would write David off. I would surely write off Gideon. Samson, like, Lord, what are you doing with Samson? Don't you realize what we're reading? We're reading God work with sinful people, bringing out them out to be what he wants them to be. And when Peter hears, when he hears that Jesus actually did what he said he would do, that he would die for the sins of the world, and that he would resurrect on the third day, what do you think is going on in Peter's mind? I'm done. All the promises which Christ had extended towards us, that we ought to respond in faith, I do not get 
another chance. John chapter 21. We see the God which is working with Abraham, working with his disciples as well. John 21. Can I just show you the character of God? Because as we see him work throughout all the scriptures with his people, we come to realize this exactly what he's doing with you. Oh, there's days in which you were thinking, man, I would reject myself from his kingdom for doing such and such. David kills, Moses kills. Never written off, God patiently shapes these men and these women into the people he wants them. And there's a point in which they stand in faith. John chapter 21, verse 15, Peter. It's the story in which God restores him, Christ restores him. And they are done following Jesus. They're back in Galilee. They're fishing. And a man comes up to the shore and says, throw your nets over. And they're filled up with fish. And Peter immediately recognizes Christ as they rush to the shoreline to see Jesus. Jesus is making food, breakfast. And as they eat, you can know the awkwardness is building. What is Jesus going to say to me? John chapter 21, verse 15. Let's just. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And why did he deny him three times? Oh, just, just the same sin that Abraham was working with. Self-preservation. I tell the truth, I'm going to die. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the next line is God extending grace, restoring this man. He said to them, tend my lands. Second, again, a third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And a third time. For every occurrence which he acted in self-preservation, Christ restores him. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Whether it's Abram, whether it's Peter, Paul, Paul will talk with this same language. That as they realize that the promises of God that has been extended towards them, that is by the will of God that has brought them to the faith in which they now stand in, that they're not moved to arrogance, but rather to humility, knowing that it's God who's brought them in the position that they now stand in. The people of God know the promises of God. But as they learn to trust in them, God is working to strengthen us in faith in that which he's promised us. How do you respond convictionally? You can learn a lot by reading of these testimonies that it's better to 
to walk in trust and obedience than to learn in walking in self-preservation. Some of you are going to walk through self-preservation. And you're going to feel like you're disqualified as you reap the fruit of it. Here is a God who will restore you and make you. It's not a disqualifying thing, but it does require you to trust yourself to Him. For those of us who read the Scriptures as we come to realize, man, I can't believe they did this, recognizing that we did these things too. And to realize that in that we ought not be arrogant, but humble. And not just towards the brothers and sisters in Christ, but towards the world that is also unbelieving. For it is also given towards them. The Lord is not slow about His promises, is He? As some count slowness, but He's patient towards you. Not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We're going to learn much more from Abram, but if there's anything to learn here this morning from the text, whether it's bring a little extra luggage or when the hard fight or when it becomes hard to give up or to practice self-preservation, we have a God who is patient. And he who begins, as Paul will write, a good work in you will see it to completion. So entrust yourself to the one who's patient with you. Let's pray. Lord, there are seasons to our life where we, I hope and pray, that in our own life now we can look back on the faith that we once had as one that's been growing. Lord, Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham, you call him to go up and sacrifice his son. I even question if I am able to do that, if you were to call. But he was moved along as a man by your steady hand to entrust himself in the promises which he has given him. And we know that it is just as well you have given us promises and that you will be with us wherever we go. If you have told the, the disciples, lo, I am with you to the ends of the age. We have a promise of eternal life. And at times we put our focus on the world in front of us rather than the world to come. Sometimes we act in self-preservation, trying to save face rather than trusting ourselves in you. Lord, whatever we're at, Lord, wherever you've convicted us, Lord, I pray that when we look at our faith, that we're not moved by arrogance of what we have done, but rather entrusted ourselves who has been patient towards us and that we move to humility, thanking you for what you've done in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.